Welcome to the Macafab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 202. Parker, what's up? Oh, I finally, finally got my pinball board ordered. Rev 2 of the Pinotaur. With the uh, with all the um, flipped relay logic, right? Yes. Yeah, the one major copper issue, which was... So I actually figured out what happened. I did hook it up normally closed instead of normally opened. So, yeah. I All I had to do was just, in the schematic, change that one little little net and then reroute the board that little, little tiny part. All fixed. You know, a uh, quick, quick little tangent. I'm working with a client right now that, um, uh, let's just put it this way, we are implementing some modern electronics in a vintage cassette kind of thing okay uh and and so i've never designed anything around uh like cassette head control or anything like that um i've done plenty of analog electronics so i know the back end of that but like the actual head like the 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 main oscillator the record head the erase head all that kind of stuff um but this this client has done something that is absolutely amazing they gave me the specs and the whole spiel of their project which is absolutely enormous let's just put it this way i have over 20 pages of schematic in dip trace for their one project and then I, I i provided them with the with the schematic and they went and breadboarded the entire thing like wow i'm not i'm talking like multiple breadboards for each schematic page and they sent me a picture of like a four by eight table with yeah just breadboards all the way down the thing and and like straight up tested the entire circuit did it work oh yeah yeah no like awesome the first picture he sends or video is he puts a cassette in and presses play and it just starts jamming (laughs) (laughs) like this is the best client ever where they will breadboard your circuit for you that they are having you design (laughs) so great but 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 all i'm getting at is like uh, I, I wish I had more time to breadboard the circuits that I do design. They, they, mm-hmm. There's sort of like a fine line between like, do I breadboard this and test it, or do I just order the PCB and then if I make any mistakes, just order another rev, you know? Yeah, so how I handle that is I typically, I, I build, because a lot of stuff I do is surface mount now. I don't do a lot of through-hole stuff, so it's really hard to... I guess you can get breakout boards and that kind of stuff. But at that point, it's like it takes almost the same amount of time for me to get a service mount only PCB built than to get breakout boards and all the parts I need that's actually prototype it. I will section stuff off. So like like what I did last couple of weeks with like the power system on the on the badge I'm working on, I actually made that its own board. So it's like everything that that revolves around the power goes on this board. So we can just test that. So I do that a lot. Like I'll make like modules, so to speak. So I'm like, okay, the power system is good. Now this microcontroller design, make sure that is good. And um, then at the end, do you squish them all together? Yeah, I just squish them all together. So like the Pinotar, we knew a lot of this stuff would work. And the stuff that we didn't know that worked, I actually designed a couple little tiny boards that were just those things to set, test if that sub-circuit worked. And then I kind of just went and popped it onto Eagle. <laughs> So. I it, one of the first engineers I ever um, worked under uh, was was really really anal about breadboarding stuff. Uh, the guy said like, "How how can you ever tell if a circuit is gonna work unless you breadboard it?" I know that's a little ridiculous, of course. Like experience can tell you a lot, but um, I I used to see him in the lab a bunch like testing new stuff. But he was also doing um, high frequency oscillators and stuff that that did require a bit of. Um, tuning yeah tuning and a little bit of voodoo that you could slap some stuff down on a schematic and like be like well i calculated things that i hope it works but he he also did it on on breadboards just to like prove it to himself Uh, but i liked one thing that he said he's like if you can make it work on a breadboard you can make it sing on a pcb and i was like that's so true because it's true yeah yeah like especially if you like if you build it like garbage on a on a breadboard and it still works that means you have a really good chance on a pcb I would agree there. It's it's really, um, it just comes down from 
you know how you design stuff and i design stuff a lot like building blocks is i'll i'll take uh i'll take the design apart and build it in separate different ways i guess you could breadboard that but again it's like you know tqfp 144 package part it's like uh, to put that on a it's that'd be really hard to put onto a breakout board regardless or let alone a breadboard like what breadboard has 144 pins <laughs> right 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 so, uh, you know I'll, I'll give you a great example of um something i did the other day on a breadboard that uh is a, a excellent example of of when breadboarding comes into play uh i had a customer who had they wanted a very cheap sinusoidal oscillator they didn't want it to be digital. They just wanted something that's like, what's the cheapest way that you can get something? And it doesn't even have to be a perfect sinusoid. It just needs to be sinusoidal-ish, basically. Mm-hmm. So so I built up a triangle wave generator, which you can basically do with two op amps uh, that are in a feedback connection. Basically, one is an integrator and the other one is a comparator. And you get a uh, triangle wave oscillator. And then by using some other components, you can make it um, either voltage controlled or you can control the frequency on that. Uh, but the, the the main thing that I use to actually turn a triangle wave into a sinusoidal wave is I, uh, I just basically did a resistor into a pair of um, reverse polarity diodes. So using uh, using the diodes, you can kind of shape a triangle into a sinusoid. But yeah, the thing is like... Depending on okay, so depending on your supply voltage rails of your uh, that you're that you're supplying the op amps, you'll get different uh, amplitudes of the triangle wave. So you can either squish it harder or less into a sinusoid, and that was a great example for I built it up on the breadboard such that I could throw it on a scope and then just quickly adjust resistors until it was the sinusoid I wanted with given the the supply voltage rails. And that way I didn't have to build a PCB and then like guess at values for making mm-hmm. a sinusoidal. I could just do it and then build the PCB off of that. And it only took me like an hour or so. Yeah, I mean, the last time I, I breadboard something was for the wagon tack project. And I had to build that filter that was reading the coil spikes. Oh, right, so I'm like, right. I'm like, oh, this might work. And so I kind of breadboarded it. And of course, it didn't work right away, right? So I had just, <laughs> cu- just a couple of resistor values and capacitor values to get that roll off of that peak just right and so that the basically i wouldn't blow up the arduino <laughs> so nice um yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 was, it has that, that was shooting like 50 volt spikes right yes yeah yeah <laughs> into five volt arduinos yes the arduino when i wired it up just straight away it did not like it so uh what else is new on the uh, pinatar uh rev 2 um, a bunch of silk screen changes. We did move some components around to make it easier to build. Um, we made it a little bit smaller, so now it is it is five inches by eleven inches perfectly now. I'd like to make it five by ten just for the one to two to ratio, but um, I don't think that's worth rerouting a big chunk of the board to make that work. Um, but yeah, uh, it should be ready by early January. Um, nice. Is it going to be in a machine in January? Late January, it'll be in a machine. Cool. But uh, early January, I'll get the boards back because I'm just getting them SMT populated. And then I'm going to stuff all the through hole uh, on this bench behind me and then uh, ship them off to everyone that needs one. So I, I ordered four. One goes to me. One goes to one of our pinball designers. One goes to Ben. And one goes to a person who's developing software. Nice. So it should be pretty cool. The, those revisions are always fun. Uh, the ones where you already have proven like ninety nine percent of things. You make a few changes for all the like, oops issues yeah. that you made, and then like you refine the silk screen and stuff to make it just look pretty. I I love those revisions because they're super. Well, generally they're super fast, but they they're also just like you don't have to worry about anything. Correct. I know this board is going to work. So exactly. I don't have to worry about it. Exactly. Rev one, we didn't know if it was going to work. It worked fine. It really the the only seriously the only copper was we had to solder a wire jumper on the relay. Um, now one of the things we want to do for Rev three is to make it better for integration into pinball machines because there's some connectors that or some thing uh, devices that are like always a thing in a pinball machine like the what's called the ball trough which is where the balls 
drain when they go through the flippers and they drain that whole mechanism is the same in every single pinball machine that we build and so it's got like four optos it's got two solenoids all this like stuff it's like okay instead of having like all those as individual connectors on the main board what if we made one connector that was the ball trough connector i'm surprised that hasn't already been done no not really no one's really done that hmm. and so we're like okay so we can basically instead of having to run like eight power lines to the ball trough you run one power line to the ball trough. <laughs> go figure go figure just to make it simplified i think actually like stern does that but they have their own system and they're super highly vertically integrated of a company um they've done that and so we're gonna do that it, it just makes sense yeah makes instead sense. of running eight and that one you can reduce your part count on the board all that good stuff um but while I'm waiting for those Rev two to show up, I gotta start designing cables for the uh, for the Pinotar. So I, we're gonna supply connectors that are basically a connector with all the wires populated. So like a big pigtail, mm-hmm. like a harness. so you just yeah a harness basically. So you can plug it in and then cut what you need and then solder to where you want to go. Um, and I was gonna ask you is what should I design those cables in? Ah, uh, you know, wh- what was going through my head is, uh, well, certainly sometimes at Macrofab, I did quite a few wiring harness diagrams. Mm-hmm. That's what uh, I was going to ask you, because yeah. you were the one at the company that did that. <laughs> I did a lot of harness diagrams, and they, honestly, wiring harnesses are a pain in the ass. Uh, well, there, uh, maybe that's not fully right. There, there It's just, it's. It's easy to envision in your head. Sometimes they're really difficult to describe to somebody. Correct. And and when it comes down to an engineering drawing, you really want it to be foolproof and like easy to read and very easy to just like give to someone and have them be able to describe back to you what they're looking at. Yep. And wiring harnesses are kind of hard to do that, if you ask me. Especially, I've seen some... Well, I'm sure you've seen a bunch, Parker. Uh, like wiring harnesses that go in in vehicles that have like different lengths and they they spawn out at different locations yes splices are the bane of my existence yeah those are good lord i would hate to be the engineer who has to draw that up um so so the uh when i first started doing the uh, wiring harnesses for customers at macrofab honestly i just did the drawings in um i think it was inkscape uh, just because that was the only drawing program I had available that was just free that I could just use. And um, I, I just drew everything up in there. I actually drew up Macrofab's title block first and then did all of all of my stuff around that. And um, so you could do... See, the thing about it is, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily even do, like, a real heavy engineering program like AutoCAD or, or Fusion. So I could probably use, like, Eagle Schematic. Yeah, box. you totally could. Yeah. Okay. The, the the biggest thing about uh that that I've had trouble with in the past with wiring harnesses is dictating a an appropriate length to somebody. Like mm-hmm. when you when you say okay, it is in my opinion it is never appropriate to a pr- provide a wiring diagram to someone without appropriate lengths lengths on there. Like if you say I want this to be ten inches. I know it's ridiculous to assume that it would be 10 inches, but like a lot of people assume that they're going to get something that's 10 inches long. Like, no, you need to give that person a tolerance and give them a freaking reasonable tolerance. Don't tell somebody like, I expect this wire to be plus or minus five thousandths of an inch. You know, like, okay, whenever you're doing a wiring harness, first of all, wiring harnesses are there to be a little bit sloppy half the time. Uh, so get, it's called sir, no, no, it's not called sloppy. It's called service loops. Oh yeah, that there we go. There's a good, <laughs> that's a good way of of uh, redefining it. Plus or minus one foot. <laughs> well, okay, he, this is a good thing to keep in mind when when doing any kind of drawing. Remember that there's somebody out there that has to build what you're asking for. Yes. And so, like, there's some poor schmuck who has to actually measure out the length that you're saying. So give them, like, if you can give them plus or minus uh, an inch, <laughs> you know, they'll be happy. because and, and 
also, if you say something like, okay, I expect this to be 10 inches plus or minus one inch, don't be surprised if you get something that's nine inches long. Like that, you said that's okay. Yeah. If you're not okay with that, say 10 inches plus one minus zero or whatever you like, just yeah. be reasonable. Always try to be reasonable and make things very, very, very clear. Pictures help diagrams help uh tables help i remember a lot of times what i did was i would draw the headers or whatever connector that was going on there and i'd have a table right next to it that said connect uh, you know conductor one is purple conductor two is red and mm -hmm. then i had numbers next to each wire and if you make it really bulletproof you have a much better chance for success so yes uh but the beautiful thing about wiring harnesses is the drawing doesn't have to be accurate. You know? Oh, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be to scale? No, no, good draw lord. Draw the no. connector and then have four feet of paper? <laughs> That's what that, uh, I got, it has a name. I don't remember what it is. But you know, like, the squiggly line that oh, you draw? Oh, it's like the, the, I call it the lightning bolt cut. <laughs> yeah, the lightning bolt cut, that. Yeah, it's that, like. That, that shows that, hey, there's more inside there's of infinite, here. <laughs> I, I, I view it as there's infinite space in this little section. <laughs> It's it's how engineers draw infinity. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. The lightning bolt cut. Use that. There's got to be a specific name for it. And I, I don't know why I don't know. Cause I, you know I mean, what? I took, okay. You know what's funny is I'm I took now. four years of drafting in high school, and we, did never, we never covered what that thing was called. Huh. Yeah. You know, actually, okay, so <laughs> here, here's the thing. Um, th when you do... Gosh, when you're trying to show an infinite sliver of drawing, you can use the lightning bolt cut. But if you're ever trying to show like a pipe or a um, cylinder, then you use the like the the S-shaped one. Oh yeah, there's there is an S-shaped one too. There's a different name for that one too. What what, what G D N T or what is it? What's it all called for like drawing? Oh, I G D N T symbols. Yeah, here we go. I'm I'm looking this up. What is what is the lightning bolt infinite slice? <laughs> I'm sure it has a name. Somebody out there is probably yelling at us right now, being like, "You guys should know this." <laughs> I mean, we we know. Just draw a lightning bolt when when this happens. But but okay. So the whole boil it all down <laughs> when it when it comes down to headers or our wiring harnesses, like those are unbelievably useful. Yes. So I, I have to draw a lot of those for. Um for this and get those quoted out. Um, I'm hoping to use like a local place here in Houston. It'd be pretty cool to kind of make it uh, all U.S. or at least non-China made. So that goes to my second topic. Non-China um, made? So electrical components and where do they come from? Question mark. Oh, yeah. Parker was complaining so, about this a lot this week. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I've been trying to figure out like with tariffs and all this stuff. It's like, okay, how do you reduce your tariff impact? I guess is a good way to put it, right? Which is don't buy parts from China. That's like, okay, if we can do that, we can reduce how much tariff impact we have on a product, right? How do you know where a resistor comes from, Stephen? Um, it comes from China. Wrong. Like that's that's what I know, right? Well, no, not act, no, incorrect actually. But how do you know before you buy that resistor where it comes from? So it all just depends on where you're buying it from, and the only way you really know is you pretty much have to ask or request the country of origin documentation, right? Correct. Now, uh, so like let's take Digikey and Mauser is. I think that I, I had some copy from DigiKey, like in DigiKey's terms of service. You have to get a quote from DigiKey, and then they will tell you the country of origin. Oh, really? You can't just so get it's it from any like, part? Yeah, so you have to get a quote from like a salesperson to get the country of origin. Now, hmm. when you order stuff from DigiKey and Mouser, they stamp the country of origin on the part, you know, on the bag. It, Stamp is the wrong word. They print it uh, on, the, on the label. And then in your invoices, the country of origin is also in there. And so I'm like, ah, oh, that's interesting. So I can get 
at least historical country of origin data for parts, right? And then I started going around and I started looking at Arrow. Arrow will actually tell you the country of origin of their stock, which I thought was interesting. So that actually, will, they will tell you on the website. And so I'm like, oh, okay. I wonder if I can ping, uh, like, how do I get that information from Arrow? Arrow has an API. I'm like, oh, perfect. I can write a script that just like, I can punch in a part number and it can go to Arrow and pull the country of origin. Except when I went to go request an API key, that part of the website crashed. <laughs> so I can't, I have not been of able to get an API did, right? key from Arrow yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, I can't do that method yet until I sent an email and no one responded yet. No, no, you, um, know, you know they're like, shit, someone's actually trying to look <laughs> trying this to up. It. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started looking at Mauser. I'm like, oh, maybe Mauser can't, will provide it through their API. That's not on the website. They don't, it doesn't do that. But Mauser has a new API set up now. Where you can like build requests in the browser, it's kind of cool. Um, like I was able to figure that shit out. I thought it was kind of cool. It's so, like you can build the URL string that you send uh, with your your scripting. It's kind of cool. Um, and then I started looking at Mauser's like uh, their um, they have an order API, so you can get all your past information. I'm like, oh yeah, that's five years or six years at this point, macrofab information from Mauser. I can just scarf all those PDFs. You can't do that. Um, so uh, the only way for me to do it is to manually download all the PDFs from Mauser, which is fine. Um, well, you're not but doing this for I wrote every a, customer, every part, right? Well, I was able to, I wrote a script that basically parses Mauser uh, PDFs for... You get the part number, the country of origin, and the HST code, which is important. Uh, which is, yeah, it's pretty. Use- it's it's information that no one thinks about, but it's pretty important if you have to export this stuff. Um, so I wrote that script and I, I ran it through a couple of different PDFs from Mauser. It seems to be working pretty well. Um, and I'm thinking about making it kind of like a. Um, I got to talk with like the the big big wigs of macrofab if I can do this because technically it's like our information because all our PDFs but maybe just hand a script to other people too to, they can parse it and maybe make a database online so you can know historical data if you order this part it came from this country hmm that'd be kind of cool if you could um, allow people well I don't know now I'm thinking about this maybe it's not so cool but uh <laughs> Well, I mean, don't read too deep into this, but but uh, it'd be it'd be cool if you could see on a notice on a glance see like where your parts coming from and say like I want to make sure it comes from X Y Z or maybe I want to make sure it doesn't come from X Y Z you know that kind of thing. Well, yeah, that's the idea. Is like so I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, I usually buy Panasonic resistors, right? Because I just know they're good, high quality resistors. And you know their part number by memory. Yeah, the ERJs. ERJs, right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, and so I was looking at them, and I'm like, huh, their country of origin is is China. And I'm like, I wonder if there's any... Th- this is what spurred I'm like, I wonder if there's any non-country of origin China resistors. Borns makes them in Taiwan. Hmm. Across so, the pond. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, well, I can just... I, all I have to do is just change all the Borns... And now I don't have tariffs on my resistors. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Does um does Macrofab uh I, the whole tariff thing happened since I've been there? Mm-hmm. So um, does Macrofab indicate what has a tariff and what doesn't? Uh, like can that you- comes through the distributors and the distributors have already marked it up. So you're right. You're no. right. Okay. So yeah, you wouldn't know. We don't. We don't know. Now we can know by doing this through prehistory. As long as like basically Borns doesn't change where they build those resistors, then you know. Hey, the last time we ordered these, they came from Taiwan, right? And then you can always update that later. So I wonder if like having a website because I have that mfr.io website. <laughs> and I'm thinking about making yeah, this right. kind of the first. I've been doing a lot of like research into like how to build like a single page applications and stuff like that like maybe you can punch in a part number 
and it will tell you, hey, the last time we saw this part number, it came from this country, had this HST code. Maybe it was had this pricing. We can add that stuff in too. Kind of like a historical data, like historical database for parts. Um, the underbelly of cool. the uh, of the electronics world, you're going to start uncovering it. Yeah, slowly but surely. But um, it's int- actually very interesting how few... Uh, what, what's really interesting with parts is um, like diodes, okay? I only found one company that does not make them in China. Really? Yeah. The Taiwan Semiconductor Company makes them in Taiwan. <laughs> but they're the only ones. Like for like... The run-of-the-mill, like, service mount, I can't I remember part number off the top of my head, but, like, a, a regular, like, jelly bean diode. 4148. Like, sure. Like, yeah, they're all in China except this one company. There might be others, but, like, I, I went through, like, f- about 20 different manufacturers, and I found that Taiwan Semiconductor Company, and I'm like, oh, they make them in Taiwan, at least according to the packaging, you know. Hmm. <laughs> um, interesting uh, diode. Uh, story happened the other day. You know, uh, a lot of through hole small signal diodes come in that glass package that has yes. the one little stripe on the side, but you can see inside of it. We actually came across two diodes in a lot that were backwards, uh, where they had the whole glass body. You could see the line, but if you held them up against a, another one, you could clearly see that the that, guts that, were backwards. Backwards? Yeah. I've seen those light up before. Well, that's no good. They're not supposed to. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> they turn into light-emitting diodes. <laughs> yeah, for a short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So, yeah, um, let me know in Slack if y'all want me to actually make that a thing ha- happen. I think it'd be kind of cool. So, And then uh, my last update is the brewery update. Uh, the electrical box needs wire management. It's just like I'm showing up, pointing to it at Steven, and there's just like wire everywhere. It's yeah. like a big rat nest. You still, um, wait, you said, was it by Christmas or by the end of the year you would have it done? It said Christmas, but we'll be brewing a beer. I don't, it's going to be tough. That's, pushing that's, it. you know, that's 15 days away. Yeah. And so I got the electrical box just needs wire management now, which is basically, I'm just going to zip tie a bunch of shit and, electrical tape and call it good um and then i gotta run i've ran 120 volts through it and it works but i got i got it it's supposed to run on 220 though so i gotta bump it up and see if any sparks fly um everything seems to be working though and then uh all the majority of the fitting stainless fittings arrived not all of them yet but i am working towards that and I am going to, I think I'm going to try buying a 50-foot coil of half-inch stainless tubing. Because someone in Slack told me, uh, like, I looked at those straighteners before, and I I actually started looking at, like, ones that are pre-built and, like, results people get. You can get a pretty good straight tube. So I'm like, okay, let's give it a shot. It it was funny. I was just going to the Slack channel to go, because I read that this morning. Someone was like, hey, you know, you can do it yourself. Sorry for that, someone. I don't remember who it was. But, uh, yeah, I want to go read that again just because, like, hey, that might be another tool that you could buy. <laughs> it will be probably because it's, like, the price of the tool plus the coil is still cheaper than, like, buying sticks of, of straight tubing. It's ridiculous how expensive straight tubing is to buy. <laughs> the coil oh, yeah, is... Uh, yeah, Robot Tech. Uh, is is the the guy from the Slack channel? Your latest podcast and the stainless steel tubing. A straightener can be made cheap. Two lengths of angle iron, five or f- or more roller wheels that will cup the tubing up to half the tubing size. Bolt to uh, bolts everything together. Clamp the, uh, the two length of angle in a bench vise and run the tubing through. Which is like if you ever see um, uh, like automatic wire benders, they basically have that mechanism on the back end mm-hmm. of it. In fact. Um, they, we, we bought, uh, when I was at Macrofab, we bought a uh, automatic wire cutter. Uh, it has that in, that basic mechanism on it. So, yeah, just make that on a larger scale, right? That does half yep. inch. Well, half inch stainless, which is super hard. <laughs> you got this, man. Yeah. Put some uh, roller skate wheels in it. 
Actually, that's what I was looking at is like <laughs> is uh, roller skate bearings and then yeah, and getting something machined that would cup the tubing correctly. So yeah, because what I've seen like uh, I, I've seen that done before where the 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 bearing what's it called the race the outside of the bearing yep. has a um, uh, a contour in it that holds the tubing right. I wonder if that's a you know what you could get uh, V groove bearings. Uh, go, oh yeah, yeah, go do uh, some Viva groove bearings, and then um, the the mechanism we have at work has uh, two thumb screws on the uh, on the top. So basically, you open it up, you slide your wire through, and then you thumb screw it down, and it um, you do a handful of bearings in one axis, and then you do a handful of bearings in the other axis, and then it's generally straight. And then everything's cheaper, but not really because you spend a bunch of money on the tools to make it straight. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm reading some of the reviews on this tube bender, I, uh, tube straightener I found. Yeah. <laughs> Can this do stainless tubing? I tried and it didn't work for me. It just turned the tubing into an octagon. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Might not buy that one. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at some of these straighteners and they're in the 100 to $200 range. Yeah, but I don't even know what what size that. Oh, this one, well, this is two hundred and sixteen bucks does up to half inch in diameter. Yep. There you go. And it's like oh, I'll need it anyways for brake lines. <laughs> sure. <laughs> as you as on, you Steven? slowly accumulate more cars. Yes, it, tools. And I wonder cars. if the mass of cars I have is more than the tools. I don't know yet. Uh, they're probably equivalent. Equivalent at this as, point, as soon yeah. as you buy another car, you will buy its weight in tools. And tools. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, have you bought any tools recently? Have I bought any tools? No, but I have used the TI Webbench to design another <laughs> switchboat power supply. A free tool. Ooh, did you see that segue? That was solid. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so um, in all in all honesty, I have use the TI Webbench to design another switch mode power supply. And so far, uh, I'm not trying to gush too much on, on TI Webbench, but I think... Unless they pain us. Well, yeah, I mean, how, how, how will our listeners... TI, if you want to sponsor hey. us... Uh, no, well, we have to say well, we are we're not sponsored by TI. I could tell you that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think uh, in total I've done five or six switch mode power supplies using the TI Webbench, and every single one has worked uh, the way I want it to, which is kind of cool, actually. Um, so I, I, we, we got a product at work that um, we didn't really have a ton of space for uh, doing a bunch of linear crap, and uh, we, needed, uh, we needed some good regulated supplies. So I slapped together a uh, TI Webbench design and uh, totally <clears throat> got it working pretty well. I shouldn't even say pretty well. Like it fired up and the smoke didn't release, right? So that that's good. And I, I gave it right to our firmware designer, and he was able to load code on things. So it's basically just a buck converter that goes from twelve volts down to three point three, because we have a we have an entire design that this is kind of uncommon for what we do on a regular basis. But because um, most of our stuff is positive negative twelve volt, but the majority of this circuit is just three point three. Um, and it's still doing a bunch of like digital audio work in general, but uh, we didn't need a whole huge analog range in this one. So that's why I was like, ah, oh, this kind of works a lot better for a buck converter instead of uh, just doing a whole bunch of linear crap. So I still need to test the uh, temperature performance of it and uh, the power up testing for uh, seeing if there's any like really nasty overshoot or anything like that. But um, that's a lot of, I don't know. I like doing that kind of testing. It's, it's, it's fun when the testing isn't to just see if the circuit works. It's more to see like how well it works. How well it works. Yes. That's that kind of testing is a ton of fun. I love doing temperature testing. Um, especially like when you like when everything starts to become successful and you see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's really fun. In fact, we've got some uh we've got some analog circuitry that's coming up here soon we're we're planning to do um that I know is gonna need some pretty interesting temperature compensation. And there's been some really um traditional temperature compensation in my industry that is 
a lot of the parts that are used for that are going obsolete. So we're going to have to develop something new that works as well as it has for the last 30 years. Uh, and we already have some designs that we've done general testing. We've actually done a lot of functional testing on it, as in like we've built circuits with these designs and put them in cases and played music on them and everything works well. But uh, no one has yet put it in an oven and said, at this temperature, it is doing this. And at this, this temperature, yeah. it's doing this and plot that. So I'm super excited because that's coming up. Uh, Can you lay down fun. the same slick riff down in Austin, Texas versus Alaska? That's but he, here's the thing: we've had that conversation, that exact conversation, because that like matters. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, so there is one band in the world that has actually played on all the continents. Uh, they play on Antarctica. Metallica has played on Antarctica. <laughs> no, no, it's a total metalocalypse really? thing. If, if yeah, swear to God, they <laughs> they they got like this little dome thing and they put it there and uh, they invited. Well, I mean, I'm the sure penguins? tickets were a bazillion dollars, but but it wasn't it wasn't a very big show. But they did it just because. And if you've ever seen the show Metalocalypse, it's totally that. Uh, oh, okay, but okay. but if you think yeah. about it, like they had to put together this whole like dome thing and and do some kind of environmental whatever such that their electronics were, would work. But yeah, I mean the the reality is you might not think about it if you're designing something for like consumer electronics, but somebody might take it to Antarctica and try to play it. So you do have yeah. to think about that. And it's funny because like with our devices, we we put them inside of a case where there's a lot of other things that are getting hot. So we sort of assume that, okay, well, everything's always going to be above room temperature, but not necessarily. It could be played outside in Antarctica where mm. it's not above room temperature. So you do have to pay attention to that. Well, what's room temperature in Antarctica? <laughs> what temperature the room's at? <laughs> I mean, room temperature is kind of the same everywhere, right? Or you would hope that it would be. Uh, so so I don't know like that that that's a bunch of fun. So so yeah this this SMPS that I designed um I did a lot of work on the layout for it because um I'm, I I try even if it's not required I try really hard to stick to good engineering practices for FCC rules and radiated emissions and and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of these data sheets I think it's funny because they call out like here's a good layout for or here's good layout rules for this kind of switch mode power supply, which is mainly, you know, um, uh, solid, uninterrupted ground planes, very, very small current loops between whatever switching transistor and whatever um, inductance is available. Uh, so it's a lot of that stuff. But one thing that I think is funny is, is a lot of times you open up these data sheets and go to that, I don't know, 18th page where they have the the layout guidelines and things and they show their like perfect layout and it's always just like the few components they need with these like massive planes that like yeah. they are able to get the lowest impedance and they're just like we'll do this and i'm like dude my circuit has a lot more going on than yours does i can't yeah. do your thing <laughs> it's like it's like every one of those those example circuits is done on like a 24 inch by 24 inch circuit board and they're right in the freaking middle you get optimal cooling right <laughs> right the 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 thing though um a lot of times they they usually well not a lot uh, they they call out like make sure that your input voltage in is as low impedance as possible your ground path is at low impedance possible your loops are low impedance things and so when i do smps's i usually try to stick to polygons for all of my copper fills. Mm -hmm. I, I don't do a lot of trace work. In fact, my boss was, uh, when I showed him this design the other day, he goes, man, you really like polygons because a lot, I do that a ton in my power supplies. Um, do you do polygons much in, in your layouts? For power circuits, I do. Yeah. Yeah. LDOs or, or switchers, I'll do a lot of uh, polygons. Actually, Pentator has a lot of that coming off main power connectors because it's like, well, we need to flow, you know, six amps at five volts through this trace somehow. <laughs> so, right, right, yeah. yeah, and and like, if you're talking about five volts, then your clearance from 
whatever copper you know pour or copper uh, polygon to another copper polygon. I mean, it can be ten thousandths of an inch where the clearance. Yeah, it can be small. It can be really small, but basically, my thought is, I'm going to get uninterrupted ground planes that fit all of my current loops, such I keep everything super tight. But I have the lowest possible impedance to all of the pins, which mm-hmm. means I'm just filling my area with copper. And I, you know, to be honest, I've been super successful doing it that way. Um, I've seen a lot of just like trace traced out. Uh, SMPS designs and they always make me cringe a little bit because I'm just like yeah sure it'll work because you, I mean the right things are connected to the right things but I'm always like do you really know how it's emitting uh, and and frankly you know, I don't either until I go and test it but it's also like uh, there's a much higher chance that, that uh, you know using big copper pores or um you know, polygons is going to give you a, a much better chance of success if you do it that way. I don't know. I've always, a, I've always worked a, that way. A big fat trace is no different from a polygon in the same shape, though. Well, not necessarily. But, yeah, I mean, you, you got to think about how things are actually flowing, right? Like, that's, that's one of the biggest things is, like, where is it coming in? Where is it going out? Um, and at high frequencies... Uh, things start to become more like strip lines, right? Where mm-hmm. your currents flow directly underneath where you're driving them. So yeah, you certainly, especially if you're talking about a big ground plane, you start to get to steer the current wherever you want it to go. So we we'll always got to pay attention to that um, at at the high, I'm doing air quotes here, higher frequencies, you know? So I know I love doing that. I think that's, I think that's a ton of fun. Um, Power supply design is is killer when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll have to show you the uh, when when I get the the board for the 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 badge power supply and show you how I did that. Nice, You'll yeah. Like it. I want I want to check that out. So. The um, I studied under a, an engineer at my first job for PCB layout, and he was unbelievably anal about using polygons. Uh, like I would send him my work and just be like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And he goes, "Those are traces, not polygons. Like redo it." And I was like, "Ah!" <laughs> but like after I did it for a while, I was like, "Man, I kind of actually really like this." And uh, and the first big eight layer board I did for them worked great on the power supply. There was like zero power supply issues. But that's because I went through like six revisions of him being like, "The impedance here is gonna suck, so do this again." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so I got another thing that um, I'm kind of curious about. Uh, so I finished up a quick layout the other day. Um, that project that Roz and I are working on, that uh, rack mount preamp that I talked about a few weeks ago, um, I did a, a, a whole PCB layout for that. And um, on that that layout, it, it just worked out because I want all of my components to be on a center line of the front panel some of my components have different stackups than others. So like for input and output jacks, I ended up putting them on separate boards and I'm just going to connect those boards with um, actually a small SMA connector and a, and a little mm-hmm. coax connector thing. Um, but I didn't want to order multiple different boards, so I just did mouse bites and, and made like an assembly board of everything, which, you know, not particularly uncommon. And in my head, like these are all going into the same product, so I make one board that has mouse bites all over it. So I I, I uploaded the board to JLC PCB, which I does, I order a lot of boards from them, and um, ran that the other day. And I got an email coming uh, coming back saying like your board has multiple designs on it. Uh, we're gonna charge you extra for it. It's like a few bucks, so whatever. I don't care. But I, I'm curious, like. How many PCB manufacturers do that? Charge you extra for what is called like a multi-design mm-hmm. uh, upload? Because, like, in my opinion, well, they, they don't know what my different boards are. They could technically be for different projects or products. Yeah. But why does it matter to them? You know, just I've got extra drill hits and mouse bite tabs. I guess is that extra it work is, for them, or it's it's extra tooling on the CAD side. I guess them. so. Yeah. Because they have a, when you upload a single design, they have in their pricing, because 
I, I, I deal with this a lot because yeah. yeah. we're a front end for people uploading their designs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, when you upload a design, there is baked in cost of tooling time for making sure your files are in a format that like the machines that are building your PCBs can read. Mm. And so all that, a, a single design is kind of baked into the price for them for the, the square inch price. But if you have two designs now, that's basically twice the amount of work for that. For like, let's say routing out all the. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Like, because now they have to go in and they have to make more tool paths for their CNC to yes. route all those little channels. And that's not. And that is not baked into their square inch price. So they, they have that. It, you're right. It's only a couple extra dollars, but they want that couple extra bucks. Yeah. And that makes sense. That that does make sense. Um, it was just one of those things where um, I, I went back and looked at their little configurator thing and I could have chosen, hey, my board has three different designs that I have separated by mouse uh, bytes. Okay. And, and I probably should have done that, but I overlooked it when I ordered the board. So, um, but I was also th- sitting back thinking like, wait, wait, why am I getting charged for this? And why does it matter to them? But I guess you're right. Yeah, the, the CNC work is extra time for them it's just extra human hours clicking buttons right labor effort yep yep cool so those boards should actually come in soon i'm super excited about that um just because they're sort of i i designed one to be like a billboard board in a way mm-hmm. so i have a main board and then a billboard that that get connects to the other one at a 90 degree angle and it's soldered with fillets? No, I, I I thought about that, but I was uh, I just went with ninety degree headers because I've, I'm actually passing signals between the two boards. But I was thinking about I did a lot of thought about uh, okay solder fillets across it for extra mechanical rigidity, but I also thought about like making like teeth that stick down into slots in the, oh, in the yeah. main board. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that kind of stuff. I like that too, but I was also like it doesn't matter, and also these are like super prototypey boards um gotcha. we are gonna give these out to some people to get their opinion on on the board but or on the function of the board we're not giving these to anyone for like hey tell us how this pcb looks like so the solder mask looks great but the silk screen's a little off <laughs> pinatar rev 3 should really have r13 over here not over there yeah <laughs> <laughs> on the left side of the component Oh man, I cannot wait till the silk screen shows up because I put the big Pentatar dude on the back of the board, and he's like the only thing on the back of the board. Oh, nice, like, pretty cool. So you know, uh, a quick fun. I just kind of slapped him up there because I kind of want to do like because on the back side of the board is only like eight or ten components, so it's not a lot. Yeah, and so I really wanted to like like when we're finally done, like okay, we're gonna go to production. Is like get someone to do art on the back of that board. Because you have five by 11 inches. That's huge. And it's, quote, free (laughs) art that we can put on it. (laughs) Right, right. So we, um, uh, so so at work, we we design and uh, manufacture a lot of synthesizer modules. And and sometimes we will do trades with other people who design and manufacture synthesizer modules just because it's like, in the family kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we actually got one the other day and uh, this particular gentleman does some really awesome artwork and their panels look super cool. And uh, so we opened it up and everyone's like gushing over it and I turned it over and looked at it at the side and the potentiometers that were coming off the panel were at like a 20 degree angle. Like they were like, oh. <laughs> and, uh, and some of these potentiometers whoever had uh, assembled it together forgot to clip the, you know, those little tabs, those anti-rotation tabs yeah, yeah, that yeah. are on the pot bodies, and they still assembled it that way, which means that they probably put a nut on it and just cranked the living hell out of it. And I felt so bad because uh. it's just like, I, you know, we were all, like, gigging on it and stuff and uh, not talking trash in any way, but I feel bad because it's like we get, it's not a competitor or anything, but we get a friend's module and we all just start dissecting it and like looking at the piece of being like, oh, we would have done this different, but like this is well, cool. That's the whole so, point, though. Yeah, we all learn from each other, too, right? Yeah, that's the whole point is to learn from each other and improve someone else as well. You know, okay, quick rant. 
I freaking hate those anti-rotation tabs on potentiometers. Um, those should not be a standard. Like, those should be an option that you add to the PCB. Not Never once have I ever used those. I've always, and every I've pot used them. I've ever used, I've had to clip them off. And we clip thousands of them at work because they're worthless and nobody freaking uses them. But use they them. come as a standard and I freaking hate it. I use them. I hate it Air because you have to drill a hole in your in in your lovely looking faceplate, and then you always have this hole, and you you think it might be covered by whatever knob. It is not covered by whatever knob, and it looks like crap. So, so on my air conditioner for the wagon, I the 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 potentiometers have a have a, had that that anti rotation knob. Yeah, that goes into. I just have another hole, put it on it, and it actually has a sticker. That goes over the whole thing, so you can know what position your fans at and whatever. Yeah, and the knob. I'm like, perfect rotation. Okay, if you're purely talking about chassis mounting, like that's the only thing that holds yeah, on. That's to the chassis pot, mounting. It's yeah, it's nice. But if you have a PCB mounted pot, you are correct. It doesn't need that crap. Like, I hate when you purchase it from a manufacturer and it comes standard with it, which that's the standard for these things. And I bet you because there's only one mold, probably for, for that yeah. piece of was it? It's like zinc. It's like diecast yeah. shitty zinc, zinc or magnesium or something like that. Yeah, it would not be magnesium. That's way too expensive. Yeah, you never know. Maybe it's, it's probably it's zinc. zinc. It's, or we think it's zinc. It's actually like all flavors of the sun metal. <laughs> no, no, what it is is it's kitty litter that's just been pressed together into like a different Pressed mold, into right? metal? Used kitty litter, actually. <laughs> so if, if there's any potentiometer manufacturers listening out there, just make that your standard offering to not have the rotation thing. If you have a PCB mounted pot. They'd have to make another, another die. Yeah. It's funny. I actually contacted a a, piece, uh, a pot manufacturer the other day, and I I sent them a drawing where I had like deleted that little thing, and they were like, "Huh, we haven't thought about that before." It's like, really? Like you haven't <laughs> thought about that? You should see you should see the floor of my manufacturing facility. It is covered in your little nubs. <laughs> yeah, you have you have an entire industry that hates these things. Right? It's like, oh my god, really? Okay. That's the thing is, even if they can give you that part for the same price, or actually a little bit more, pricier, I would pay more. I would pay more. You would pay. Sure. Well, you have to figure out how much labor you're spending in it. But yeah, it, it could be worth a couple extra more cents a pot to have that thing actually not even there. You know what's going to happen? They're just going to remove it on their end. <laughs> oh yeah, pay you. someone to remove it. Yeah, and then charge pay someone extra. else to yeah. remove it. Yeah, no, no. no. Okay, let, let me put this into perspective. Uh, we did a customer project the other day that had uh, it was a five hundred piece run. Each one had twenty four pots on it. Each pot Holy had crap. a knob to do, and we paid a guy for ten hours to clip all of those things, and he wasn't slacking. It was it took ten hours to clip that many pots worth of nubs. Okay, so, so put on, that into perspective. Like, take, well, we're going to do some quick, quick math. Quick, so, quick math. So, uh, five hundred units, right? Five hundred units, like twenty-four, 24. pots. Yeah. So twelve thousand pots. Yeah. So how much does this guy get paid? Um, I don't know how much this guy gets paid. Let's just let's just go with um, fifteen bucks an hour. Yeah, sure. Let's go with fifteen bucks an hour. For like ten, so hours. that's one hundred fifty. It only cost you one hundred fifty bucks to, to do that. Yeah, uh, sure, but that guy could have been useful doing something else. That's true. That's a completely so worthless for, task, if you ask me. But it's twelve thousand pots. So you are looking at a full day of the week is shot. You're Pay looking at a little bit more than a penny. A potentiometer is what you paid to remove those things. <sighs> so price-wise, if it was a penny, it would be worth it. But it's more. the principle of the matter. The I principle. hate it. <laughs> okay, okay. So, but no, no, no. We're we're, we're going to play some some accounting games here. So, it, 
Yes, sure. Let's say we paid that guy 150 bucks to to clip those pots. You could have found someone that was like a, a you could have found someone that was just hanging outside your building to do it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. No, no, no. Look, follow me on this accounting game. I'm turning into a businessman here. You ready for this? We paid that guy 150 bucks to to cut all of those nubs. Let's say if we had had that guy building a new product, not just clipping pots, let's say yeah, his yeah. labor would have uh, grossed us $500. Yeah, you're, talk- you're talking about grossing right. on top of what... On top of that. So take the $500 plus $150. There's $650 that we're out that we could have had, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Now but- we're talking about more money there. And yeah. screw the. You're talking about rotation. you're talking no. about just utilize. You're talking about utilization now. Exactly, which is a whole different ball game. Yeah. of of calculating out uh, uh, net worth. You can make numbers do anything. <laughs> yes, you can. That's you what can it, make numbers do. Anything. That's what it boils down to, right? <laughs> so yeah, and, and yeah, no. W- this guy was not allowed bathroom breaks. He wasn't allowed a lunch. That was just ten hours of straight nub cutting. O- oof, <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. Oh, man. Let's go on to the RFO now. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this week we've got uh, Ben Heckenorn, who's been on the podcast a couple times. He's got his single chip Atari 2600 portable project done. Um, this is a project that I've helped him with. Uh, and it's basically a... We talked about this on a podcast before. He's had this, Maybe. He's had this project going for a decade. Yeah, long. I think longer than a decade, but yeah. yeah. Okay, I I think yeah, I, at least a decade. Yes, at least a decade. Um, but at the very end of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, which was a video game console for people who don't do not know, um, Atari made a all in one chip that had all the components that was inside on the circuit board in one chip. Uh, at the very end, tail end of the of their of the lifespan of that product, and. Ben managed to snag one like decades ago, and he always wanted to make a portable with it. He couldn't get it to work, um, and then he found out that I actually had one as well, and then we basically reverse engineered the schematic, and he got his working after ten years, and he made a cool portable. So go check it out, um, and if anyone out there has one of these single chip Atari Twenty Six Hundred Juniors. Let me know because I just want to know like what serial number and stuff it is. Because like, seriously, like I think Ben and I know like there's only three that exist. Like I have one, he has one, and there's like one random dude on the internet. <laughs> How many of these things were made? Four. We had no idea. Four. <laughs> it could be four. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's even like the official schematic for this chip is incorrect. Right, you guys had to like pin it out and, and you had to pin it out ourselves because the, the uh the the official schematic uses um they were going to use a dip forty eight package and they ended up using a dip sixty four and so there's a lot of no connects on on the uh, chip yeah it's it's weird but yeah go check it out uh, I'll post it we'll post the YouTube link in um in the uh, podcast description. The next thing is the Worma. Is that Worma? Uh, it seems yeah, like sure. it. Multicolor LED beacon. A beacon displays two thousand color. Two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand colors. So this is a light tower that is USB controllable. Um, so like a notification tower that you would put on like a a pick and place machine or a CNC machine to let you know the status of the machine from you know across the, the building. So you go, oh, that's yellow. We need to go figure out what's wrong with it. Green Something is good. Or red. Red yeah. is bad. Green is good. Which, okay, so these light towers, um, okay, kind of cool that it can f- display 200,000 colors. You really only need three. You know? That's, the, uh, that's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at is I'm like, what? Are you going to have like, oh, it's magenta now. <laughs> it's magenta. Purple. What does that mean? Yeah, what is yeah? Like, can you, from a glance across a building, find two different shades of like, let's say, blue, and you know what that what it is? No, just I think it's a little silly. Now, 
having multiple colors, like maybe because I've seen like four color towers and I've seen five color towers. I'm like, okay, there's some use for that, but like 200,000 colors. <laughs> it's a little ridiculous. Like, are you going to, yeah, are you going to waste time like customizing your favorite color when it just needs to be some shade of red, some shade of green, and, you know, whatever, some shade of yellow? Oh, but red is an aggressive color. <laughs> but, ma- but maroon is not. Yeah, we have to use maroon. <laughs> Actually, so uh, uh, the the large CNC I use at work has four different colors, and at first I thought it was super cheesy, like ridiculously cheesy, because it doesn't have a light tower. The entire gantry of the CNC glows uh, colors, like it's it looks really like cyberpunk CNC kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I've learned to really really love it because it's super bright and absolutely unmistakable like if it's green it's running there's no problems i can be all the way across the building and look over and see my like favorite green color that is glowing (laughs) over there because like it's still running uh and if it's red there is a problem or if it's yellow i need to address something you know like it's super easy and and like i said at first i was like oh my god this is so cheesy but now i'm just like that's amazing super great but the other thing is this multicolor beacon is over $300. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I've bought light towers that are like five-color light towers with a siren for in like them. For like 20 bucks. Like 20 bucks. Yeah, off of Amazon. So I'm right? like, uh, You know, that that was a real, that was a very early Macrofab project, the fart tower. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we should make that as our, our inaugural 2020 project. <laughs> one project to rule them all the yes. fart tower, fart tower. I, it, it was a uh gosh the, we were gonna do like a uh it was a tower that would um had a methane detector on it right yeah it had a it basically had a voc detector <laughs> and then it, it had a light sensor so you can know if the light in the bathroom was on or off and then you had a a um a a PIR, I think is what it is, sensor, per- person infrared, I think. Anyways, it can basically detect if people are there. And so you can basically have it. And so you can say, you know, there's people inside the bathroom or not in the bathroom without having to use a camera or anything super. Inv- it's how like there's automatic, like, like better smeller devices. <laughs> what would you call those? They spray aerosol to make the bathroom smell better. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So, so. Uh, the uh yeah, I'm I'm I wonder if um if some of our listeners are like, did you did you guys ever actually do any work? Like <laughs> <laughs> We did a lot of work. That's why this thing doesn't exist. Right, yet. right. And, uh, the the concept <laughs> and the parts exist, but yes. the the final part I, I still had that box. Do you really? Yeah, God, I still that's had around for a parts. while. Okay, uh, did you do you still have what's it called, Box McBoxface? That's gone. Ah, uh, I did. I did reinstall the speaker back in the ceiling, though. Okay, yeah. When we, when we moved up. over to the newer location, we pulled out some of the um, PA system yeah. from the ceiling that was from the previous tenant and then we just cut a hole in a cardboard box and shoved it in there and then parker and i had uh, we had a, a sound system that was actually fairly decent for just a speaker I, actually i in have a it right box. here do you really oh look at that oh and that's so, so great i hacked a bluetooth module onto the back with some sticky foam mm-hmm. and um so the old pa system you could Bluetooth connect to it and then uh, play uh, Meatloaf over yeah, the PA system. We would Bluetooth. Yeah, honestly, uh, the the engineering department every day was either Meatloaf or the Doom soundtrack. Yeah, that was for about a couple months. That was that way. <laughs> Which, hey, I was okay with it. I like both of those. I didn't have a problem with it. No, other people did, and I don't know. Yeah. That's their problem, not ours, right? And we had our we had our own. Well, I guess logistics was in there as well. So okay, logistics was not into meatloaf, but they liked the Doom soundtrack. They did like the Doom soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good times. Yeah. Well, we should wrap up this podcast. Yeah.
So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. We talked about that Slack channel a lot uh, today, so go check it out. Give us some ideas. Um, say if you like meatloaf or not. You know, stuff like that. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen. As it helps us that helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. And I think we have a guest next week, right, Steven? We do have a guest next week. We're talking about um, coax design and manufacturing with wood.